All right, well, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we will jump into Lamentations chapter 3. Our God and Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. Father, we pray that uh, you would use your word this morning to penetrate our hearts, conform our hearts to the image of your Son. Father, may we uh, take just what we glean today from your word and be able to use that in ministering in the lives of our families and uh, our children and those that we work with this week. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so we have now made it to the halfway point of the book of Galatians. I did this also last, a couple weeks ago, Lamentations. So um, to start our study today, we're going to first uh, take a little bit of time and look at some of the poetic structure that Jeremiah has used in the book of Lamentations and also the, what he uses specifically in chapter 3, because this is going to be critical in our understanding of the message that Jeremiah is going to be sharing with us. So if you remember chapters 1 and chapters 22 so far, how many verses do we have uh, in each of those chapters? Yes, 22. So we've got... Um, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, there's 22 verses, and why do we have 22 verses in each of those chapters? How did he set up um, the poem? Yes, yes, it's, it's alphabetical. There's an acrostic. And so, if you were to put it into the English alphabet, verse 1 starts with A, verse 2 starts with B, and it goes, it's, um, it, it goes all the way down through the alphabet, and there's 22 verses. And one of the things that we haven't really spoken about, but um, each verse is set up by a set of three lines. And those lines would be tricolons. Um, so each tricolon starts with a letter, starts with letter A, letter B, letter C. And so if you were to turn the lines of Lamentations into, um, I guess you could say, a musical beat, the way that it would read for each of those tricolons, it would be like A, B, and that way and continue on through C. So you have these three lines, A, then you have the next verse, B, and then continue all the way through the alphabet. So each verse being one of those three line sets. Chapter 3 is a little bit different. There are some similarities there. It still is constructed with 22 tricolons. So just like chapters 1 and 2, you've got these three-line sections, and there's 22 of them. But here's what's different. People, um, and, and several people even have just mentioned to me just in conversations around Calvary, um, how chapter 3 is a larger uh, chapter because it has 66 verses. But the reality is, it, it is really made, it's the same length, it's made from these three-line tricolons. But the difference, though, is what Jeremiah has done is has taken each tricolon, and instead of having line one, starting with the letter of the alphabet, he has gone line one is A, line two is A, line three is A, now the second one. So if you were to beat this out musically, it would be more A, 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 B, B, B. And you can kind of see almost this emphasis or driving force with it. So it's the same length as chapters 1 and 2, the same structure as chapters 1 and 2, but it's going to sound different. And when you see it on paper, it's going to visually be different. And this would almost be the equivalent of Jeremiah highlighting and underlining, bolding, italicizing, we're going to make this look and sound different, chapter 3, compared to chapters 1 and 2. And this is, this, there's going to be a reason why he did it this way, why he's trying to draw our attention and make chapter 3 stand out. And we'll talk about that in a second. 
One of the things I want to look at, though, and this is going to come into play, is there's another poetic device that Jeremiah uses, and he's actually done it a couple other times in chapters 1 and 2, and, and we'll do it again in uh, 4 and 5, but it's re- repeated throughout chapter 3, is these tricolons, these three-line segments of the poem, what he does is take either the third line or sometimes it's the first line in the subsequent tricolon and he puts them together. So you would have lines, lines one and two dealing with a theme, but then the third line is dealing with the same theme or idea that you find in the next tricolon. Or it could look, if I can split my fingers that way, it would look more like that. I can't do the Star Trek thing very well, yes. But so you might have a tricolon that's all giving the same theme, and the next tricolon that's coming, the first line actually lines up with that theme, and then you've got two others. And this is actually, if you think of it, a way to keep you driving and to prevent you from stopping and reflecting too long. I don't want you to sit right here, go on to the next topic. Now, how many of you all have seen when you're reading through the Psalms, sometimes there's this little word off to the side that we usually just skip. What is that? Selah. That's right. That's right. I would have said Selah. I don't know, but I'm not sure what the right thing is. It's, uh, it's just there. I don't know if I've ever really been taught on it too much. But who knows or has heard what this Selah, this Selah, what, what is it for? What, is it, what does it do? When the harp string breaks, you know, maybe so. <laughs> David got really into the harp strumming or something like that. Yeah, this is where you can stop and change it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a stab that that's not quite right, but <laughs> thank you, Doug. <laughs> yeah, uh, who, who has an idea what the salo is used for? Yes. A pause. Yeah, stop. Let's reflect and meditate on what we've just said. And you know, maybe it might mean, I don't know what you would call it, is it like an interlude where there's music playing, we've just said a verse and now the, they're going to play for a little bit, we're not saying the words, I hope it's not a time to zone out, but a time to just think on what we just sang. Now, going back into Lamentations, this structure where he takes these tricolons and will move either the bottom or the top line into the same topic that um, that goes with the, the adjacent tricolon, it's almost an anti-sela. Don't pause. Don't, don't stop right here. Look at what I'm about to share with you. Keep going and look at what the Lord has for you. So this is going to come into play um, as we look at chapter 3. So in short, chapter 3 was really written to stand out to the reader both visually as well as, you know, um, audibly, the way it sounds where with the repetition of each letter as opposed to it just showing once per tricolon. Um, this is going to be um, the main reason why Jeremiah was highlighting chapter 3. Lamentations was written as a chiasm. And this is probably something that um, many, if not most of you all are familiar with. But a chiasm, it is just a Hebrew poetic structure. It's the way I'm going to structure um, what I am writing. And it doesn't actually have to be poetry. Uh, you know, even prose or um, uh, the, the teaching sections of Scripture can also be written chiastically. But it's a way of saying, I'm going to take a topic... And I'm going to use those as bookends. And then we might have even another topic and another topic. But in the middle, there is going to be a truth or a topic that is of the primary concern or the primary importance for the writer. And so with a chiasm, and if you look on your outline, I actually took um, a chiasm from Philip Kaiser, who's a commentator. And this is his chiastic outline of the book of Lamentations. And so it shows how Lamentations was written 
on bookends that got subsequently closer and closer to the, to the middle to a central truth. So the chiastic outline, it shows the central truth of Lamentations is Yahweh's steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the central truth of Lamentations, and this happens to be found in chapter 3, where we are today. So throughout Lamentations, it's the character of God that has been repeatedly on display. And the character of God, it is the focal point of the book, but it's also the apex and the focal point of chapter 3. So let me read the, the chiastic focal point of Lamentations. I'm going to read verses 22 and 20 through 24 and tell me if you've heard, the, heard this verse before. Okay. The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Is this familiar? How many of you all wanted to say that in song that we know? Yeah, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's, we know these words. They're very familiar to us. So when you look at the focal point of Jeremiah being the character of God and his steadfast love, we remember that the, those same verses are also the focal point of chapter 3 because chapter 3 likewise is its own chiasm. And those same verses are the focal point because the first verses of chapter 3 as well as the last verses of chapter 3 speak to the judgment of God. And if you also look on um, your, uh, your outline, I put the chiastic structure of chapter 3. And you can actually see that verses 1 through 20, it shows God's judgment against the rebellious Jerusalemite, the man from Jerusalem. But then verses 43 through 66, it shows God's judgment and his vindication. So, Following the principle of the chiastic poetry, we know that we should find, stuck between, the, stuck between these two bookends, um, what the focus of our study should be. And so what we're going to find, really, within these verses, there's going to be two things that are revealed. One of the things Jeremiah reveals between these two bookends of the judgment of God is God's character. And throughout this passage, he repeatedly reveals who God's character is. But secondly, he also shows us a penitent man's response to God's character. The penitent man, the one who is humble and repentant before the Lord. So, in other words, you could say that the central theme of Lamentations is, and tell me if this sounds familiar to us, I hope it is by now, but the central theme is God's character demands that you and I turn to him. This is what we find between these two bookends. God's character and the response to that, which is turning to him. So, throughout Lamentations so far, We've seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we're going to see the same thing in chapter 3, we've been given first-person accounts of God's bitter judgment of Ju Jerusalem's sin. In chapter 1, it was a first-person perspective of a rebellious man, and it was actually the widow Zion, Lady Zion, giving her first-person perspective of what God was doing. And we saw four bitter truths of God's judgment. The last truth was that the judgment was ultimately to lead to confession. In Lamentations 1.20, I want to read this. It says, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. 
My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. This is that first person perspective of the confession of Lady Zion. Chapter 2 also gave a first-person perspective, and this was last week, but it was the perspective of a godly man. And it was the godly man's response when he was surrounded by God's wrath being poured out upon the the, uh, sinful people around him. And so we saw three godly responses to God's bitter judgment. And specifically, those first two were that we must lament the condition of the lost And the second, does anyone remember what we were also to do? We were to evangelize the lost. Exactly. So the godly man's response um, to seeing God pour out his wrath on those around him would be um, to lament their condition, which should naturally turn into evangelizing them. And we we see this in Lamentations 2. I'm going to read verse 11. This is a verse that probably should have stood out to us. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the street. Now chapter 3 also is going to give us that first person perspective. But this time we're going to get the perspective of the penitent man. And so I'm going to read uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 for us to get a picture of this. In verse 1, he says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. So like chapters 1 and 2, the lament, it starts with a description of God's judgment. And for this week, so I won't be focusing on God's judgment in the message today. Um, if you would like a more in-depth look at God's judgment, those bookends of Lamentations chapter 3, I'd actually encourage you to the 45-minute, to listen to the 45-minute introduction that I gave last week. Um, and uh, um, what we'll actually see, and what we saw in chapter 2, was God repeatedly reversing his relationship that he had with Israel if you remember that. And that is actually something that's repeated in chapter 3. The difference, though, is those reversals are happening on an individual level. He's giving his perspective of that relationship being reversed while he's under the judgment of God. Now, some commentators, they actually will think that chapter 3 is actually the righteous poet or Jeremiah's perspective of what is going on with God's wrath and judgment against Jerusalem. They'd say that the the poet is not actually the one who's the object of the wrath, but he's an observer. But I think what we'll actually find is it's best to see the person who speaks in verse 1 as identifying himself as the one who is being judged. And this is going to become clear here just very shortly, but particularly we're going to see him saying that he's experiencing those same judgments that we saw in chapter 2. But if you remember, one of the things that uh, they mentioned in chapter 2 was that God's arrows were targeting um, the ungodly But here in chapter 3, we actually see that God sends his arrows into the man. And we see that in in chapter 3, verse 13. So let's go ahead and start reading. I'm going to read the first three verses of Lamentations, chapter 3. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 16 and read a little bit there. So Lamentations 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into the darkness without any light. Echoing last week where God clouded Jerusalem, blocking out the light. Verse 3, surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Verse 16, 
He has made my teeth grind on gravel and has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, listen here, my endurance has perished and so has my hope from Yahweh. At this point, um, by the time we finish with verse 18, we see that this man has done several things. He's accomplished several, th- several things. One, he has identified himself as the man who God is disciplining with the rod of his wrath. Number two, he actually has gone through and described God's rod of wrath, showing how now he is the enemy of God. But number three, and we see this in verse 18, he has come to the end of his strength. He says, my endurance has perished. He's like the infants and the babies who were dropping and fainting in the streets of Jerusalem from chapter 2. He is, he's done. But verse 18 continues even more tragically. It says, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from Yahweh. This is a critical uh, phrase to catch. This man's hope has perished. This man's hope from Yahweh has perished. If you think about it, of course it has. This man has become God's enemy. God has set himself and made him his enemy. God has sent arrows into the man. Of course his hope has perished. He has no hope. Now let me ask a question of you. How will this man, whose hope has perished, who is under the rod of God's wrath, how will this man respond? So today, we're going to be focusing the remainder of our time really on the focal point of Lamentations 3, this center section, as found between these two bookends of God's judgment. And there really are two lessons here, but we're going to be really focusing on the second lesson. So the first lesson is going to be that the character of God as revealed in Lamentations chapter 3. And this is a great study. And for this, since we're not going to be focusing our time on it, actually put a chart in your handout just with some observations of God's character and where they are, where those characteristics are revealed within chapters three. So feel free, feel free to look at that and refer back to that as we're talking and as we're going through this lesson. But the remainder of our time really is going to be looking at the second lesson that we're told within this focal point. And that's going to be four responses to God's character. We're going to see that God's character demands four responses when you are under the rod of God's wrath. We'll see that you must remember God's bitter judgment of sin. You must recall the character of God. You must rest under the discipline of God. And fourthly, you must return to Yahweh. So number one, remember God's bitter judgment of sin. We're going to start reading in verse 19, right after what we had just read in verse 18, where the hope of Yahweh has perished. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So right after declaring that the hope of Yahweh has left, the man's first response is to then turn around and cry out to Yahweh. He says, I've lost the hope of Yahweh. And so in verse 19, 
implied Yahweh, remember my affliction, remember my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Now, this is actually the second time that we, in our study through, um, uh, through Jeremiah's uh, book of Lamentations, this is the second time that we've come across that phrase of remembering afflictions and wanderings. Back in chapter 1, in verse 7, and you can flip a page if you want to go back there, we read, Jerusalem remembers in the day of her affliction and wanderings. That's the key that, we, that we're looking at. She remembers all the precious things that were hers from days of old. So we saw in Lamentations 1 how remembering the precious things, these things of old, that these were the first steps in her turning back to God in repentance. The man now in chapter 3, he cries out to God. He cries out, remember me now in my afflictions and my wanderings. Remember them because I remember them. He's taking that, sta- that same step that we saw in Lamentations 1.7. In verse 20, he says, My soul continu- continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So what is the it? It is what he's asking God to remember. The um, afflictions and the wanderings. He's saying, God, I remember my afflictions and wanderings. He says, God, I I remember your bitter judgment of my sin. I remember the afflictions of the rod of your wrath that I'm under right now. God, this is my first step in turning to you as a penitent and broken man. So let me ask, do you believe Proverbs 3.12 Hebrews 12, 16, or in Proverbs it says, Yahweh disciplines the one he loves as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Do we believe that? When you find yourself under God's discipline, remember the afflictions and the wanderings that you find yourself in. Reflect like this man does on the bitterness of God's judgment and the discipline in your life so that you can look back to God and have your hope restored. Remember God's bitter judgment of sin. The second thing that we learn as a result of God's character is that we are to actually recall his character, bring it to mind. So let's read verse 21 and we'll read through verse 25 for it um, together. Now, let me, kind of, let me go back and actually point out, I'm going to reiterate something I said earlier. This is an example of where we actually have verse 21, which is that third line in the Zion colon, where each line starts with the Hebrew letter Zion, Zion, verse 21 is that third one that ties right in um, with verse 22. So uh, this is a point where he does not want us to just sit and dwell, but he wants us to continue on and look at God's character. So where he says, verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He's remembering his afflictions right now. He's dwelling on the bitter judgment of his sin. And if you remember verse 18, he has had the hope of God perish. And then verse 21 comes along. This I call to mind, And therefore, I have hope. I hope that you are ready to be blown away right here. In verse 18, he's cried out, I've lost hope. Verse 20, 
I'm, I'm reflecting on my afflictions, but this is what I bring to mind to have hope. This is a matter of Jeremiah saying, pay attention. When you are in affliction, do this. When you have your hope perished, do this. Because simply calling something to mind, and I'm about to tell you what it is, this will bring back hope. So before we read what we're about to look at, think right now. I know that there are those of us that are in here who right now feel like we have no hope. I want you to pay attention to these next verses because calling this to mind is what brings hope back to this penitent man. Verse 21, this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies They never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Amen. This is is exciting. Yahweh is good to those who wait on him, to the soul that seeks him. So let me ask, I'll respond so you can respond so I can recover. What does the man under the rod of God's wrath call to mind to give him hope? What does he call to mind? I'm sorry? The faithfulness of God. It's his character. The character of God that we see here is his faithfulness. We see the steadfast love, the hesed of Yahweh that never ceases. His mercies. They never come to an end. Yahweh is good. When you are under the rod of the Lord, how did you get there? I'm guessing it was something like this. You were tempted in a way that was common to man, and you failed to walk down the path that God had provided you for a way of escape in 1 Corinthians 10. Or possibly, you were carried away and enticed by your own lusts, James 1. Or maybe after pleading to the Lord to remove the thorn that was in your flesh, you failed to believe that His grace was sufficient, 2 Corinthians 12. Or maybe, as in Mark 12, You just failed to love God and love your neighbor. These are all ways we fail. And they're all ways that we fail when God is no longer our hope. If you are under the rod of the Lord, recall the character of God. Question one of the children's version of the New City Catechism, I have to do the children's, but it says, what is our only hope in life and death? Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but that we belong to God. So family, are you under the rod of God's discipline? First, Remember God's bitter judgment of sin. The rod is bitter. But second, this is our hope. He is our hope. Recall the character of God. 
And third, rest. Rest under the rod of discipline. This is going to be the hard one. (laughs) This third point is uh, the hard one for us to apply. So, notice that we're going to look at this poetic point here surrounding, again, the focal point of this chiasm with these chapters where God's character is revealed. Both in the verse before, verse 21, and the verse after, the focal point, verse 25, they tie into this focal point. And we're not to take these verses, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. We're not to pull them out and put them on our wall by themselves. We're not to paint the picture that we all see hanging when we walk into Mardell's that has this mountainscape and the beautiful glass lake and the eagles swooping in. And at the bottom, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Jeremiah did not intend these verses to be pulled out. He wanted verse 21 and verse 20, um, 25 tied into these verses. 25 is continuing to show God's character, God's goodness as the basis of the hope. But verse 21, if you remember, he's coming out of hopelessness. The scene those verses should be painted under is one of Kosovo, destruction, where God has destroyed the walls of the strongholds of Jerusalem, destroyed his temple. This is the scene under which these verses are designed to be um, written. But we're not to just stay there. We're to immediately, verse 25, in that next tricolon, keep going. This is who God's character is. What do we do? And starting in verse 25 through 30, we find that we are to rest under God's rod of discipline. Verse 25, Yahweh is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of Yahweh. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It is good that a man rest under the rod of God's discipline. So what is resting under the rod of God's discipline? Well, first of all, resting is actually waiting for God to deliver and save you. In verse 25, where it says, it is good to those, um, God is good to those who wait for him, who seek him. Remember God's character. Trust that God is good. And then verse 26, it also continues, it is good to wait for the salvation of Yahweh. And how are we to wait? We wait quietly. So I'm going to ask a question here. Is it tempting for us to remove ourselves from being under God's rod of discipline when we find ourselves there? We don't want the uncomfort. We don't want the bitter judgment of sin. But the root word that is waiting here, it actually denotes waiting for another to intervene on our behalf. And it denotes trusting, in this case, waiting on God to intervene, trusting in God as opposed to trusting in our own schemes. And one commentator said, it thereby involves a disentanglement from other possible sources of deliverance. 
Israel should have waited on the Lord. But they did not disentangle themselves from other sources of deliverance. They ran to Egypt. They ran to Assyria. So let's kind of talk through this idea or or concept here. Should a convict remove himself from other, under the rod of the government? No. What happens if they try to remove themselves from under the rod of the government? They get arrested and thrown in for a longer sentence, right? They, they break out, they catch you, and they throw you back in. But at the same time, what is the result of waiting quietly under your sentence. What is the result? Early release. Best case scenario. Worst case, you do your time and you come out and you're free. What about children? Is it good for a child to remove themselves from under the rod of their parents. <laughs> no. We deal with this every day, don't we? What is the result of trying to remove yourself from under your parents' rod? Maybe an additional spanking? Maybe a longer grounding? But what is the result of resting and waiting under your parents' discipline? So let me ask this, should a man remove himself from the rod of God? A couple of verses in Isaiah also refer to God's deliverance coming to those who wait. In Isaiah 49, verse 23, this stands out a little bit interesting, um, just the imagery here, but it says, kings shall be your foster fathers. And their queens, your nursing mothers, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Isaiah 40, verse 31. This is another one. But they who wait for the Lord. What's it say? Shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Verse 26 says, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of Yahweh. So let me ask a question. Who, he, who is here under the age of 25? Got a couple. <laughs> I'll expand it. Who, who here is under 35? And who here just feels youthful? <laughs> Larry, put both hands up. So... <laughs> This next verse is speaking to you, okay? It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It is good for you to learn this lesson when you are a youth. I want to ask an interesting question. We'll do some participation here. So right now, I'd like for each of us to think through our life, okay? Have you had a time when you have tried to either extricate yourself from under the discipline of God, or you have tried to get out of a tough jam that you were in with less than godly methods? (laughs) Only when it occurs, that's right. So think on this. I'm not going to ask anyone to share, but if you can think of a specific time where those happened, can you go ahead and raise your hand? 
Okay. If your hand is raised, I want you to stand up. Youth, look around. These people all agree with verse 27. This is a good lesson to learn as a youth. You may sit down. You will learn this lesson. You will learn that it is good to wait on God's salvation. But it's good for you to learn it when you're a youth. Does anyone agree with that? Yes. If you are under the rod of the Lord, rest under the rod. Rest under the rod of the discipline. It means waiting on the Lord to deliver you. And it also means submitting in silence. Let's read in verse 28. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Here, the man who is resting under God's rod of discipline is expanding his explanation of what it means to wait in silence. Verse 28, sit alone in silence. Alone and silent. The only possible way to contemplate your situation is with these two qualities. Alone and silent. With others, reflection is nearly impossible. Do you surround yourself with friends, maybe loved ones or even strangers? Do you try to drown out the effects of the Lord's discipline? Now with talking and with distractions, contemplation is impossible. Don't drown out and numb the effects of the rod of the Lord with music, busyness, screen time, leisure, sports. Sit alone in silence when it is laid on him, verse 28. So this is the same term, actually, that God used when he told David he was being judged for disobedience and in pride, counting, numbering the people of Israel to see how many there were. And God told him, three things I offer or lay down on you. Choose one of them that I may do it. And 70,000 people were killed in judgment for David's sin. It was in 2 Samuel 24. When God lays discipline on you, when he offers you discipline, take advantage of the time to contemplate and reflect. Be sanctified through the trial of God's discipline in your life. But not only are we to wait in contemplation, but we're also to wait in subjection to God. Notice in verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. This is not just a matter of sitting in the dust and moaning and being miserable over your condition. That's what the elders and the daughters of Jerusalem were doing in chapter 2. This is a, a matter of being in subjection to Yahweh. You are willingly, humbly placing yourself where God's discipline is taking you. You are submitting yourself to the insults and the strike of God's instrument he is using against you. Subjecting yourself to God's rod gives light. At the end of verse 29, there may yet be hope. God may yet 
deliver you. Remember what we talked about in Deuteronomy 29 and Deuteronomy 30. The purpose of the exile was not to destroy God's people. Chapter 30 told us that the purpose was that the people would return back to the Lord so God could circumcise their heart and he can restore them. This is why we wait. There may yet be hope for God's restoration. And this is the heart behind the next three verses that we find. In verse 31, For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, we will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. These three verses are God's character. So brothers and sisters, when you are under God's discipline, look to his character. Remember the bitter judgment of sin. Recall the character of God. Then rest under the rod of his discipline. And finally, the last step, return to Yahweh. Return to God. Let me close by reading verses 39 and 40. Here we see the final response to God's, that God's character demands of us when we're under his rod. Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to Yahweh. God's character demands that you and I turn to him. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that you would draw our hearts to you. We pray that we would be sensitive to the rod of your discipline in our lives. May we look upon the discipline and contemplate. May we recall your character. Father, may we rest and may we turn our hearts to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.